Well, hey, good morning again. Have you heard about the crop circle in my backyard yet? I've got a crop circle in my backyard. It's about 25 feet across and everything in that circle is dead. Every weed, every blade of grass, it's all dead. Now, if I tell you the story at the end of this message, it's gonna be a lot more meaningful. So what we're gonna do, we're gonna work our way towards that story and we're gonna start right here with a quote from Mark Twain. Mark Twain used to talk about people who were, quote, good in the worst sense of the word. I think we've all come across people who are good in the worst sense of the word, haven't we? There's these people, there's a lot of them out there, um, who present themselves as the guardians of the good. And yet the way they're living and what they say they stand for don't match up. I remember a time when I was in high school and we were going on our first ever short-term mission trip. We were heading down to Juarez, Mexico. And there was this good person and she was tasked with giving us instructions about how we do this well, how we represent God well in a different culture. And she said this, she said, every good Christian girl on a short-term mission trip to Mexico should wear a dress all the time. And every good Christian boy who goes on a short-term mission trip to Mexico should wear long pants all the time. And so not knowing any better, we said, okay, we'll do this, even though we were going to be doing construction projects in 100-degree heat. But hey, if all good Christian girls wear dresses, all good Christian boys wear long pants. Let's be good. Let's gear up. So we do what she told us to do. Now, that was the year I was introduced to Emanuel Children's Home where exactly none of the girls wore dresses and exactly almost none of the guys were wearing long pants, especially on the construction projects. Our instructor had good intentions. She wanted us to be good Christians, but she created rules that had nothing to do with being good. In fact, I even remember one of the guys pulling me aside um, at the children's home and he's like, why do all your girls dress like nuns, he says. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you can relate to situations where, where there were lots and lots and lots of rules, but those rules weren't necessarily God-honoring. In fact, what they did is painted a false picture of what Christianity is all about. I know a lot of people, they spend time with Christians and they've seen those situations with all these rules that really didn't make a lot of sense. And they came away thinking, oh, if something is fun, then Christians don't like it. They hate it. And even worse, I've talked to a whole lot of people. They spend time around Christians and they come away saying, Christians hate me. They don't just hate fun, they hate me. Well, this reminds me, all this reminds me of a movie that came out right around the time I went on my first mission trip to Mexico, a movie called Footloose. You remember that movie, some of you? There was an earlier one, the 1984 one is what I'm talking about here. Kevin Bacon, come on. I, what I didn't know until I was preparing for this week is that the movie was based on a real incident, loosely, but based on a real incident that happened in a real town called Elmore City, Oklahoma. So let's pretend that Elmore City is a one church town. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. If that were the case, Elmore City Church, that is not the kind of good that we're going for. Why? Because in real life, Elmore City had all kinds of rules that aren't necessarily in the Bible. In Elmore, 
There was no dancing allowed, really. There was no dancing allowed in Elmore. And again, in real life, churches often do similar things like that. They create all these rules that aren't in the Bible. And what do they do? They go after the rule breakers in a way that is very different than the approach that Jesus took. Last week, we launched a series called Why Are Christians So Blank? Today, what we're going to do is we're going to address that question. Why are Christians so anti? Why are they so anti? Having all these rules that aren't even in the Bible, that is one way to do good in the worst sense of the word. All right, let's go back to the movie. We were talking about real life here. Let's go back to the movie. In the movie, Footloose, there's this big town meeting about whether or not the teens should be able to have a prom because at a prom, there's dancing. And at that meeting, one of the teens, a guy named Wren, he gets up and he starts quoting passages in a Bible that someone gave him that was all marked up. And, and, this mark, and, and he quoted pi- uh, passages in the Bible where people danced. In his mind, he's trying to do good. He's trying to show that the Bible isn't anti-dancing. But here's a problem with the approach that he took. And I invite you to write this down too. Preacher Wren, he has blind spots of his own. If you're familiar with the Bible, watching that scene where Wren is quoting the Bible, it is so cringeworthy. Not because he's saying, um, well, it's cringeworthy because here's what he does. What he does is he takes something the Bible says and then he twists the words to make it say what he wants it to say. And that's a bad way to do good too. Taking verses out of context to support something you believe, it's going to lead you down a dangerous path path, even if your intentions are good. All right. What I'm about to say here, I've been setting this up. What I'm about to say right now is really unpopular, but I want to ask you to hear me out before you tune me out. Okay. Here's what I'm going to say, and you might even want to write this down. Anti isn't all bad. Yeah. Anti isn't all bad. On our best days, Followers of Jesus, we are anti-greed. We are anti-hypocrisy. We are anti-jumping to judgment. We are anti-oppression. We are anti-abuse. We are anti-trafficking. We are anti-twist the Bible to say whatever you think you want it to say. So, let's put all this together. Elmore City Church isn't the answer. Making up lots and lots of rules that aren't necessarily there in the Bible. But neither is a church pastored by Pastor Wren, where you think you're teaching out of the Bible, but really what you're doing is you're twisting the words to get a conclusion that you want. So how do do we get this right? How how do we avoid creating toxic rules that aren't God-honoring in a toxic culture? How do we then also avoid the other extreme of twisting words of the Bible to say things that they don't say? And I guess it's not the other extreme, it's just a different approach here. All right. In fact, both of them are kind of taking that approach. Here's the good news. Let me get back on track. Here's the good news. We have an example where Jesus addresses this head on. We have an example where Jesus speaks truth into a group that was was going off the rails. If you have your Bible with you, let's take a look at that example. Uh, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 24. If you don't have a Bible at home, I want to invite you to hit pause right now. Go to youversion.com. They've got a great Bible app and, uh, and take a look at that. All right. I've referenced this passage before, but now I'm excited to spend a little more time digging into it. Uh, a little context around this passage. Jesus is about to talk about and confront directly uh, two groups of people, Pharisees and the scribes. 
The Pharisees was this group who's kind of Elmore City Church-ish, or actually more like Elmer, Elmore City Council-ish. And, and what they're doing is they're making all kinds of rules. In fact, they had something like 613 different commands. And then the passage also men mentioned scribes. They were considered experts in God's laws. Let's take a look at what Je Jesus said to them and about them, starting with verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger. All right, let's hit pause there and talk about this a little bit. Jesus begins by saying, listen to their words. Listen to their words. Why was that important? It was important because in that time and in that place, most people couldn't read. And even fewer had personal access to the writings of Moses which are included in our Bible in the Old Testament section. It's the first five books of our Old Testament Bible, Old Testament in our Bible. So Jesus says, listen to the words that Moses gave us because they're going to help you discern between the way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. But what else does Jesus say? He says, listen to the words that come from Moses, but don't do what these people are doing. Don't follow their example. How sad is that? How sad is that, that Jesus had to distinguish between those two things? Listen to their words, but don't look at their example. The example they're setting, it's not a good one. They don't practice what they preach. It, not a hard jump to today, is it? People teaching about Jesus, but living lives that are very, 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 very different than the one that he modeled. Okay, let's continue on. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. Speaking of those two groups, Pharisees and scribes, they say this, they, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi, being called rabbi by others. All right, it starts off in verse five by saying, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Ah, isn't that still a huge issue today? Isn't it a temptation for all of us, for you, for me? We want to impress others. We want to please others. We want to get others to like us. Well, in this case, they're doing these things so that all these other people, when they look at them, they're going to say, these people, they are holy. These people are getting their religion right those phylacteries that were referenced, they were small leather cases. They contained Bible verses and they would put them up on their foreheads and they'd put them right on their left arms for everyone to see. The fringes they're referencing were special tassels that were attached to the four corners of a man's garment. And what does it say? Jesus like, they make theirs extra long. And when the people went out, oh, they loved the fact that they got the VIP sections to sit in and they loved the fact that people were calling them by a special term, by special terms that, that, that denoted a sense of reverence. Um, along those lines, it was really interesting. One of my sources said, hey, let's connect this to real life. And they spent a little bit of time talking about the origin of the term reverend, reverend. I never felt comfortable with that term being applied to me and, and I wasn't sure why, but now I, I am. It literally means one who is to be revered. One who is to be revered. I tell you this, I will do my best 
to earn your trust. I'll do my best to earn your respect. But boy, the term reverend sure seems close to what Jesus is talking about here as far as a warning of what we should avoid. All right, well, let's, let's continue on. Um, another one of my sources had a great take on the relevance of this passage beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. A lot of times as Christians, we're so used to doing what Jesus said, which is we should do, and that is to start with ourselves first. And, and before we look at others, let's look at ourselves. So we take this and we apply it to churches. But in context, a Pharisee is not a direct um, translation or direct uh, um, comparison to a pastor. And so um, one of my sources, N.T. Wright, he, he says this. He says, let's be clear. In this passage, he's talking about this passage. Let's be clear, the problem Jesus identified is not confined to churches, but runs through most modern societies from top to bottom. Oh, isn't that true? People in general, inside the church, outside the church, people love the spotlight and the power and the perks that comes with it. At least a lot of people do. And how many times do people create an image, an image that conforms to the culture around it. I've been doing a lot of reading for a series on race that we're doing this fall. And this week I came across this quote, speaking of a group of leaders that said, they led from behind an unruly mob. They ceded power to define these issues to demagogues. Isn't that exactly one of the reasons we're making so little progress these days on anything? People who are painting themselves as leaders, thought leaders or, or leader leaders, they're not leading from the front, they're leading from behind. Leading from behind. How sad is that? Well, Jesus, he cast a vision for a very different kind of community. One where we see ourselves, not as above and below, brothers and sisters. One where we're honest about who we are and what we struggle with. And one where we do our best to elevate Christ and his example and his teachings above all else. Now, this is fun. For those of you who appreciate literary structure, here's something else that's going on in this text that we're talking about today. Matthew organizes his gospel around five different discourses. And it's really interesting. He's got five sections that we in pastor circles call these discourses. In chapter 23, the one we're in, it is part of discourse number five. Now, one of the reasons that many scholars believe Matthew did this, created these five sections, is to present Jesus as a new and better Moses. The Jews believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And Matthew groups this new covenant teachings and new covenant um, example of Jesus into five groupings as well. Well, it's interesting to see how Matthew bookends these discourses by contrasting what happens in one and in number five. In the first discourse, Jesus opens with blessings for the meek and the pure in heart. But in this section, Jesus has harsh words that are directed at those who aren't modeling that at all. Let's continue on. Verse 13 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you, what word is used? Hypocrites. If you grew up with the Bible, you're used to this. You're used to Jesus calling out people in authority. You're used to Jesus calling out the Pharisees and the scribes. But as the time that this was happening, when this was unfolding in real time, these words would have been shocking. Shocking. 
because Jesus was directing these statements at people who were considered the most well-informed and the most devoted practitioners of the Bible that there were. The language is strong. It is really strong. We don't have a direct uh, translation uh, for the word translated here as hypocrite. The Greek word that's used comes from Greek theater, where a person, it would describe a person who would come on stage different times during the same show, but playing different characters. So they wear a mask, a different mask, every time they came on as a different character. But several scholars said the range of meaning is broader than that Greek theater term. It can also be used to describe people who lead others astray, or seek after prestige and power in shady ways, or teach false doctrine, or major in the minors, or people whose actions don't match their words. Let me ask you this. Is it a good thing that Jesus is anti-hypocrisy? Yes, it's a good thing. Aren't you glad that he is? And as a quick side note, I often have people tell me things like this. They say, hey, one of the reasons I don't trust the Bible is that it was put together by powerful people who are trying to protect their power. Really? If you were a powerful person trying to protect your power, is that the kind of thing you would include in the scriptures? And that's just one of many, just a thought. All right, back on track, here we go. Right after calling these people hypocrites, Jesus uses a specific imagery for a specific type of official. Let's continue on, Matthew 23, 13 through 14. It says this, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Okay, um, some of the scholars say what this, they're doing here is drawing from very specific um, imagery from a very specific position that happened in those days. There was a, in some of these cities, there would be these officials, I forget what they're called, but they would go around with all these keys and they had the right keys to let you in and out of the important places. Jesus is saying, you're like those people, only you're shutting, you're locking the door on people. You're locking the door on the kingdom of God. Wow, let's jump ahead then uh, to verses 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier measures of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Oh, this is a really, really interesting accusation. Jesus says this, he says, tithing is good, don't neglect it. But while you're tearing off a tenth of your dill plant, you are neglecting justice and you are neglecting mercy. You're neglecting faithfulness. Jesus said that is like what you do. And what he, he references on something they actually did. They would strain their wine so that they didn't swallow a gnat, which was one of the smallest unclean creatures there were. Jesus says, it's like this. You do that, but then you turn around and you swallow a camel, which was the largest of the unclean animals in the area. Well, if you're looking for something weighty, <laughs> we can help. We would love, love, love to invite you. In fact, we need, need, need you to help us reach the next generation. We have refugees that are coming into Minnesota that could really use help learning our, our culture and, and, and learning how to, how to navigate um, our, our, our area. We, we would love to have you helping us with people who are homeless and women who've been abused to be there in a time of crisis for people, like a hospitalization or a funeral. If you wanna do good that's good, 
we, we invite you to join us. Well, I just had a conversation with a young man this week. And interestingly enough, it was about these things. When he was a teen, he told me about how he walked away from church and he stayed away for a long time. Why? Because the culture he was in was toxic. It was a culture where you couldn't ask hard questions. It was a culture where when he looked around, people were doing these things. They were minoring, majoring in the minors. What if, what if we became more and more and more defined by what we're for instead of what we're against? If you've written nothing else down so far, this is worth noting. Are you focused on Scripture's fours? You know who did that really, really well? Jesus did. And do you have any guesses as to what kept that guy from walking away from Christianity completely? It wasn't the Christians. It was Jesus. This is why we're challenging everyone in this series to do your best to commit Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 to memory. And if you can't get it all the way in the memory, read it every day, 3, 4, 5, 6, 12 20 times to at least get it in your heart. It says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus cast a vision where his followers didn't get in the way. He cast a vision where we were the salt of the earth. We were a city on a hill. We were a community where people could look at us and they could see at least a reflection, a dim reflection of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And that brings us full circle, pun intended, to the story I teased you with out there at the beginning. The story of how I ended up with a crop circle and what that can teach us right now. Here's the story. This summer, I had a chance, uh, we, well, we had a grad party for my, my daughter and we knew it was coming up. And so we had a lot to do to get ready for it. One of the projects on my list was our front yard. We had been neglecting our front yard for a long, long, long time, especially the lawn. And there was this big old section of the lawn that was just horrible. It was full of weeds. There were these barren patches. And so I went to work. I aerated that ground. I, I poured down fertilizer. I got a whole lot of black, rich soil. We put in seed. I lined up all kinds of sprinklers so that we could get it to be watered. And when the weeds came up, I was very careful to, to, to take them out in a way that didn't destroy the rest of the yard. And it took weeks and it took weeks and it took weeks. But by graduation, it looked a a lot better than it did before. So that was the front yard. That was the front yard. Let's talk about the backyard. The backyard, right after the party, I went out, we were cleaning things up the next day, and I noticed there was a section, a circular section, where the grass didn't look so good. And at first I thought it was because, oh, they were playing spike ball there, but it kept getting worse and worse and worse to the point where by the next day, I had a crop circle in my backyard. I'm like, this is not from spike ball. Because every blade of grass was dead. Every weed was dead. It was scorched earth for about a 25-foot circle. And I'm like, what happened? And then I remembered. 
the day before the party. We took the pool cover off and we set it down on the lawn and we sprayed it off to get it all clean and get all the debris off. And then we flipped it and did the same. And then we left it there to dry on a hot, sunny, 90 degree day. And that combination of the scorching sun and the chlorine killed everything. Sin is like weeds in our life, isn't it? When things like greed and pride and immorality and hypocrisy, when they begin to, to take root in our lives, it destroys the life that we could have. So if sin is like weeds and grass is like the flourishing life that our soul longs for, things like peace and joy and faithfulness and compassion and love. If sin is like weeds, good is like grass, you've got two basic approaches. There's the approach of the Pharisees and the scribe, and it was pretty much a scorched earth way to go, where you focus so much on the don'ts, you focus so much on the anti, that you end up killing all the life. The other approach is the way of Jesus. And that's where we focus on what we're for. And they're two very different approaches. If the backyard approach is one and the front yard approach is another, here's my invitation to you. Help us together become a front yard community. Amen?